Hey, what is up, everyone? Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles. I am Donnie, your host, and with me is a man that loves fall weather, unless it's hot and muggy, and then he hates fall weather. It's Dale. I hate that shit. I don't, I don't like muggy weather at all. Muggy. Where did that word come from? I don't know. How did it go from being a, a glass with a beer in it until... Muggy. Muggy. Skeeter. Skeeter infested. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially here in the south. Sounds like your drawers. Yeah. Muggy and Skeeter infested. Yeah. Not my drawers. I got them, I got them, I got them clean drawers today. Oh, that's some camping drawers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You doing all right, bud? I'm doing all right. Good. How about good. yourself? I'm doing well. Good. You still feeling good? I'm feeling good, man. Awesome. So what we got going? Well, I'm going to give um, everybody a reminder to go on to Apple Podcasts and click that five star. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. How hard is I that? I want to challenge everybody that uses Apple Podcasts of this episode. Or if you just got an iPhone. Go <laughs> to Apple Podcasts and click that five star and give us a review. Please. It won't take just a few minutes. Pretty please. And honestly, it does help us. Cherry on top. It does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does. It's pretty cool stuff. Yep. Cherry on top. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want everybody to go to the website and... Look at the store page. If you see anything on there that you like. You know the holidays are coming up, don't they? They are. And who, what would be a better Christmas present than getting a Crack House t-shirt? Get your loved one. Except you got two. If you got two, that'd be better. Oh, yeah. One for you and one for your boyfriend or girlfriend, but not for both. Yeah. If you do, get both. Yeah. By two or three. Yeah. Get you a mug. Get you a mug. pillow, phone case. <laughs> a pillow. They got pillows? They got pillows on there. Hell, I'm going to buy me a pillow. You didn't know we had pillows on there? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, there's pillows on there. Is that like a pillar or is that a pillow? A pillow. <laughs> this, I don't know if that's in my Australian voice or my British voice. Get, uh, you, get you a pillow. What you mean, sir? <laughs> Good day. Cheerio. On your chip. pillow. <laughs> All right, well, that's enough of that. We, just, we got uh, sideways. We're gonna, yeah. we're gonna be way over our two minute mark, and that yeah, guy will be bitching again. Everybody be complaining, and fussing. <laughs> I'm about to fast forward two minutes so I can get to the story. Yeah. All right, but we're gonna make you wait. All right, then. no, because it's uh, been two minutes and like thirty six seconds. Sweet, we yep. did it on purpose. Drug it out that far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we drag it out. Make them wait. Make, make them em. wait. Yeah. All right, we're gonna get into our episode, dude. Mm, let's do it. Yep, and this is the murder of Jacob Wetterling. Now, Jacob Wetterling was born in Little Prairie, Minnesota to parents Jerry and Patty Wetterling on February the 17th, 1978. And he was the second of four children. He had an older sister, Amy, a younger brother, Trevor, and a younger sister, Carmen. Now, Dale, Jacob loved football. Yep. And he loved to play football. He He loved to watch it and collect football cards. Yeah, his favorite team was the Raiders, even though he lived in Minnesota. Yeah. Well, that's okay. I mean, you like, Raiders are cool. You like the Cowboys even though you live in North Carolina. Damn right. Okay, so you, you sort of get that, right? I do. Okay. Now, he enjoyed playing the game of Clue. That's fun. And his favorite food was a steak. Can't blame him. Nope. And he had a best friend, and his name was Aaron Larson. Aaron Larson. And Jacob, he even dreamed of being a either a professional football player or a veterinarian. When he, yeah, his when mom he, said he really loves the animals. So. Yep. So he had some good aspirations. Yeah, he did. Yep. Now, in October of 1989, Jacob was 11 years old, and he spent most of his days, like most any kids, playing football in the yard, riding his bike down the street, or, or renting movies. Now, on October the 22nd, 1989, this was in the early evening hours, his parents, Jerry and Patty, they went to a dinner party in Clearwater, Minnesota, Right. and it was about 25, 30 minutes away from their 
their home, which was in St. Joseph, Minnesota. Or St. Joe's if you're local. St. Joe? That's what they got. Okay. Those locals. I'm not local. No, I'm not local up there. Mm-mm. Uh, Jacob, who was 11 at the time, and his best friend Aaron, he was 11. His younger brother Trevor, who was 10 at the time, were at home with their younger sister Carmen. Right. And they were at home for a while. This was on a Sunday. And I think they'd spent the day watching football and just hanging out and having a good old time. I think they had pizza for supper and uh, just hanging out. Yep. They didn't have school the next day, so it was a rare opportunity to have a big time on a Sunday. Oh, yeah. And then knowing they had the day off on Monday. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And their parents wasn't at home. Right. So they they pretty much were having a good old time. Oh, yeah. But after being home for a while, the boys decided they wanted to ride their bikes down the road, which was about a mile and a half to a store called the Tom Thumb to rent a movie. Yeah, they just want to go get a major league. Yeah, <laughs> but they wasn't able to get major league because uh, they weren't old enough. Right. Yeah. I think they even tried to have somebody call down there to get it to get them to rent it for yeah, them. Yeah, they called their neighbor, uh, Rochelle, who lived next door. She was 14, I think, at the time. Mm-hmm. Even though she wasn't old enough, they wanted her to call to the store and act like, she had the mom. <laughs> she probably had an older voice. They let him pick it up, yeah, but she didn't do it. She was, she was worried about getting in trouble. But anyway, they devised a plan. They were going to call their parents at this dinner party yeah, to ask them if they could go. And Jacob called and talked to his mom and asked if they could ride down the store. And she told him no, that it was too late. And like in October, the days were shorter, and it got dark a lot quicker. Right. And they devised a plan. They were wanting to go to the store bad, Dale. Yeah, they wanted to go get a movie. Yep. And some snacks. Yep. And they called back to that dinner party a few minutes later and talked to their dad, Jerry. Yeah. You know how that works. Yeah. Mom says no. Okay, well, let me talk to dad. And this time, Trevor, the younger brother, tells him they will wear a reflective vest and take flashlights. And they'll even call a neighbor, Rochelle, to come over and watch their little sister, Carmen, while they go to the store. Right. So there'll be the three of them together, so... So he, he figures, you know, you got three, you got the numbers, and plus you got some uh, protection from getting hit by a car. That's, that's what the dad was worried about. He's more, more worried about them getting hit by a car. Somebody didn't see him in the dark than anything else. Yep. So the dad, Jerry, says, okay, y'all yeah, can go. Talk me into it. Yep. Now, the boys, they did call their neighbor Rochelle Jerzak. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. I'll go with that. And to come over and watch Carmen while Jacob, Aaron, and Trevor rode their bikes to the store. Yep. And it was around 9 p.m. at that time, and the boys, they take off on their bikes toward the Tom Thumb. That must be something. Tom Thumb? Yeah, because I never heard of that. Uh, that must be a northern store. It's uh, something like that. And, uh, well, on the Dallas Cowboy podcast, they're always talking about some kind of guacamole available at the Tom Thumb. Hmm. So, anyway. Yeah, we don't have a Tom Thumb right here. We do not. Nope. But the, the Wetterlings, they lived in a cul-de-sac on a dead-end street. Mm-hmm. And there was one road that came in and split into two different dead-end roads. So there was only one way in and one way out where they lived, mm-hmm. if you sort of picture that. Yeah. Now, yeah, the, road, the main road came in and split off into two different dead-end cul-de-sacs. Yeah. Yeah. So they were just pretty much at, at the dead-end and with no way out. Correct. Yeah. So anybody coming in there either lived there or if they didn't live there, they didn't have no business in there pretty much. Yeah, true. Yeah. Now, on the way to the Tom Thumb store, the boys are passed by a car, but they think nothing about it. And some of their neighbors are still outside, and they live in a quiet, safe neighborhood like we talked about. Mm -hmm. 
and they arrived at the store and they rent the movie the naked gun yeah because they get that it was pg-13 so that was on the that was borderline that was for them. Border. <laughs> yeah yeah that's so a good that's, movie though. that's a dang good movie <laughs> leslie nielsen yep yeah dang good movie now on their way back to the Wetterly house the boys began to push their bikes back yeah i think they were just taking their time and walking along and talking and, oh yeah you know how boys do but they were less than a half a mile from the home when a man jumps out of the bushes and he was dressed in dark clothing and he had a mask over his face and Dale, he was holding a gun. Yeah. And he told all the boys to put their bikes in the ditch and for them to get in the ditch and lay down. Yep. And he asked each of the boys their age and Trevor said he was 10. And like I said, he was the youngest of the boys. Aaron said he was 11 and Jacob said he was 11. Mm-hmm. Now, when he asked Trevor his age, he told him to take off running into the woods yep. and not look back. Don't look back or I'll shoot you. Yep. And he then shined the flashlight into Jacob and Aaron's face and asked them how old they were. Yeah. And he told uh, Aaron to take off running into the woods, too. Yeah, well, he grabbed Aaron in the crotch first. And then, uh, and then he looked over at um, Jacob and he told Aaron to run. And then run as far as fast as you can or I'll shoot you in the back. Yeah. And then uh, once they got so far away, they turned and seen that uh, he could grab Jacob by the elbow and drug him off into the woods. Yeah, and he was gone. Yeah, gone. And the boys, they ran quickly to the Wetterling home and told Rochelle what had happened. And she got her dad next door, and he came over and called Jerry at the party. He told him Jacob had been taken and they needed to come home, and he would call 911. Right. 911 emergency. This is Merlin Jerzak calling from 29458 Kiwi Court in St. Joe, out in the township. I'm right now next door to my neighbors, at my neighbors, the Jerry Wetterling family. And uh, some of their boys went down to Tom Thumb to pick up a movie, and on their way back, someone stopped them. We believe that they have one of the boys because the one of the boys did not come back with them. Okay, were, you, were they picked up in a vehicle? Just a second, I'll ask the boys. Was there a vehicle there, or was he walking? They couldn't. They didn't see a vehicle. This person appeared on the road when they were bicycling back home. And they don't know where their other friend is at. They don't know where their brother and friend is at. So we're missing two people. You're just missing one. Did they see the individual at all? Yes, they did. Did you see the individual at all? He had a mask on. The other dispatch right now is dispatching the squad to where you're at right now, okay? Okay. In the meantime, I want to compile as much information as I can. What is your name again, sir? My name is Merlin Jerzak, but I am at my neighbor's. And that's Dr. Jerry Wetterling. That's Dr. Jerry Wetterling. Send him to where we have this screen at, okay? How old is the individual that has not returned? Um, how old is Jacob? Eleven. It's Jacob, right? And he's yes, eleven. Jacob, Jacob Wetterling. What was Jacob last seen wearing? What was Jacob wearing? Eleven-year-old boy. The male party did have a mask on. Uh, he was wearing a red hockey jacket that had police department on it, and it has his name on it. Police department written in back? Police department is on the back, in white letters, in white letters. Where was the last time they seen Jacob? Where, uh, 
Um, we couldn't really see it, but we just sort of thought. Okay. Did he threaten you? Okay. Do you guys see squad cars outside the residence? Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. Bye now. Bye. All right. Now, the Stearns County Sheriff's Department, they arrive on the scene about seven minutes after the 911 call. That's pretty quick. Very quick. They ask each of the boys to take them back to where Jacob had been kidnapped. And they take them down the road near the farm of Dan Rassier. And in the ditch, the police find the boys' bikes. Right. All right, let's talk a little bit about Dan Rassier. Okay. Now, Dan, he was a music teacher at a local school. And Dale, he was 33 years old at the time, and he lived with his mom and dad on a pretty large farm. I think it was a little over 150 acres. That's big. Yeah. And he was very much into music, and he had a massive record collection, too, which is very cool. Yeah. Yeah. But on this evening of October 22nd, he was home alone, and he was in his room organizing his record collection. I think he was making note cards and stuff of all his records. Yeah. Index cards. Yeah, index cards. And this is when he saw headlights coming down his gravel driveway. And I think it was a pretty long driveway. Yeah. From yeah, what I, like a quarter mile almost, I think. Yes, but he could see it from his house. Yeah. Well, it, come, it was down off the road and then kind of circled around toward the house. So it was probably. Yeah, but he saw the lights coming down the driveway. Definitely. And he was curious because he wasn't expecting anyone because his mom and dad, they were out of town. I think they were in Europe or somewhere. Yeah, traveling. Yeah. And he noticed what he saw was a blue vehicle coming up the driveway and turned around in front of his house before heading back out towards the main road. Right. And this was about 9.15 p.m. It's kind of funny. I wonder how he knew it was blue if it's dark. Well, I don't know if it had a, maybe, maybe a, a street light or, or yeah, some kind of light outside. Right. Or, you know, never yeah, know. Just checking. But Dan didn't think nothing else of it, and he went to bed. And he was awakened around 10.30 from his dogs barking. And he looked out the window, and he could see several flashlights running around outside on his farm. Yeah. And he thought someone was probably trying to steal his firewood or something. And he called 911. Yeah, he thought about going outside, and then he realized there was about 10 or 12 of them. And he said, well, what am I going to do if I go outside? So he went ahead and called 911. Yeah, you can probably take one or two of them, but that, you, know, <laughs> you got several, you know, you can't take that. Right. I mean, and they informed him that there was a child missing, and it had been abducted. And the police were around. Searching the area. Yeah, they were searching for him. And Rassier uh, got into his car and he drove down the road and spoke to a deputy who told him, you know, a child was missing. And he told the deputy that he would check some of his buildings. And as the search went on, Dale, uh, with helicopters, dogs, until around 3 a.m. Yeah, I think they called in. They called everybody in. The state police, everybody brought the helicopter and searched around and said they were even flying low almost into the power line searching with spotlight. Mm-hmm. They, had a, they had a lot of people. They were even walking arm in arm through the woods yeah. trying to find something. something. But this was the middle of the night. It was about 3 a.m. And they called the search off, yeah. which was, I think, stupid. Well, and it may be, but their, their point was, you know, if there's evidence here, we could be just trampling it to death. You know, this is cause, true. Because we can't see anything. So if there's anything that we need to preserve, we got to stop, you know, at least give it a little bit. But mm-hmm. I think they were satisfied that they couldn't find him in the area, you know, real quick. But mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just, I don't know why he would stop. You know, I'm, well, I guess, you know, I don't know. But these first 
few hours after a child is abducted, man, you know, it's critical. That, yeah. Very, very critical. Well, the thing is, you know, the kids, they, they questioned him, you know, and he said he didn't, they didn't see any cars or anything. So they thought, you know, hell, he's got to be here somewhere. And it's only been a few minutes, you know, when they first got there. So they, I guess they figured it was probably going to find him pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Because the boys never seen the car. You know, I think what had happened is the guy had drove, I think he was the car that passed them on the way in, and he seen them, and then he pulled down this guy's driveway when he seen him when he come back and pulled probably about halfway up the driveway and, and parked his car on the, the upper end of this gravel road or mm-hmm. gravel driveway and then hid in the bushes waiting for the boys to come back. Yeah. But they were looking for Jacob, and they didn't find anything. Nope. So, they, like I said, they called it off. Yep. All right, Dale, we're going to jump just a – couple days a couple days ahead to october the 24th of 1989 this was about 3 40 p.m this was less than 48 hours after jacob was taken and a local high school sophomore walks into the stearns county sheriff's office with his father and he wants to talk to an investigator deal and the boy says that that in the last two years there have been roughly eight molestations in nearby painesville minnesota and he says he saw two of the assaults and that someone grabbed the boys off their bikes and threatened them with a knife. Hmm. And the boy thinks the quick military and proficient style of the attacks, you know, kind of looks like what happened to Jacob, Jacob Wetterling. Yeah. yeah. And he even suggests that the investigators talk to Officer Bill Drager of the Painesville Police Department. But the Stearns County investigators didn't pursue this lead at all until january the 5th of 1990 that's them three months later yeah i I don't understand this yeah i know it's like they just they knew what they were doing they didn't want to listen to anything else anybody had to say yeah this kid you know he he put it all together that quick Mm -hmm. and then begged his dad to take him down there so he could go talk to him and then they put it off for three months yep Uh, like i said three months later when they do pursue the lead it leads to straight to a danny heinrich who was a suspect in the Painesville cases. Now, on uh, January the 12th of 1990, this was two days after investigators questioned Danny Heinrich about the Painesville assaults, the Stearns County Sheriff's Detective, Steve Mund, he photographed some Sears brand tires on Heinrich's blue Ford EXP. And Mund, he had created a plaster cast of the tire marks at the scene of Wetterling abduction. And he also, he was also the investigator who on October the 30th of 89 had received an FBI crime lab report connecting the mud tracks to one of the two types of Sears tires. Now on January the 12th of 1990, Munn finds the Heinrich tires resemble the prints left at the scene. Yeah, they found the tire tire tracks and uh, some adult shoe prints and some child size shoe prints all with the head of that gravel driveway and so they thinking that's jacob's shoe prints and the abductor's mm. shoe prints yep so it must not been too gravelly yeah probably more dirty dirt now the the stearns county sheriff uh don gunmanson he even said that investigators found only two sets of tire tracks throughout the investigation and one was heinrich's and the other came from a car that wasn't running anymore hmm yeah it kind of narrows it down narrows it it down very very tight yeah and there were many suspects that were ruled out based on non-matching tires and it seemed that Heinrich's tires didn't rule him in 
even though he drove the only car that could be connected to the crime scene, Dale. That's blunder, blunder, yep. blunder. Yep. Now, on January the 12th and 14th of 1990, Heinrich, Danny Heinrich, fails a polygraph test and is found to have car tires that resemble tracks left at the site of the Wetterling abduction. Yeah. Yeah. Investigators put him under surveillance, and they begin at 9 p.m. that night. And within minutes, they see Danny Heinrich get into his car, and they trail him. Mm-hmm. And Heinrich leads the investigators on a series of, like, twists and turns and trying to evade He, he knows him. his yeah. back here, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he even turns off his lights and, you know, shakes the investigators. Yeah, that quick. Yeah, and investigators trail Heinrich for parts of the next two days at his home, at local bars, and on dirt roads, and then appeared to abandon the surveillance effort. So I wonder why they wouldn't ask him why he's trying to ditch us. You know, exactly. I mean, I mean, I don't know. This There's a whole lot of what the hell's in this damn case. Yep. Now, according to Gunmanson, Danny Heinrich's driving tactics matched those used by the man who abducted and sexually assaulted 12-year-old Jared Sherrill in January of 1989. This was just... The same year that Jacob Wetterling was abducted, Dale. Yeah, it was just, what, uh, nine months before. Yeah. And this three-day period should have made investigators more suspicious of Danny Heinrich. So here you know, they already know who this guy is. And he's got to be heavy on the radar, man. Yeah, or he should have been. Yeah. This is blunder, blunder city. Now, Dale, the town changed the day Jacob was kidnapped. And parents wouldn't let their kids ride their bikes to school. Kids couldn't be seen playing after dark, even in their own yards, man. Yeah. And this case gathered a lot of national attention, and it was featured on People magazine, and the Wetterlings were interviewed by John Walsh and even Geraldo Rivera. Yeah, they came to their house. Yeah. And the Wetterlings believed the search got too big too quickly, and instead of looking local, which, given the area where Jacob was kidnapped, it seemed likely that the person had to be a little familiar with the area. Oh, yeah, for sure. They had to live around there. Yeah, to be in that neighborhood. And they were getting so many calls that they were... They even set up a recorder at the Wetterling's home. Yeah, had a little phone, had a little, like a cassette in it, I think. Yep. And they were answering, which is be That is, that is weird. weird. Yeah, that the parents would be Why did they have it set up at their house? I don't know. I don't know. And, and people were calling saying they had seen him, and, and they were even psychics calling. Yeah, everything from he's okay to we have him or he's with me, or and psychics calling saying some guy with new legs has him, and people saying they seen him riding an elephant down the middle of town, and... It's all kind of... Can you imagine what they were going through? I mean, ringing all around, you know, people in the middle of the night. I can't sleep. I thought I'd call you. Mm-hmm. You know, just crazy. Yeah. 24 hours a day. Yeah. So it got to a point where they just had neighbors and friends come over and answer the phone. They was getting so many weird phone calls. People wanting them to send... Psychics wanting them to send toys and pieces of clothes and all kind of stuff. Yeah, that's just weird now. It's crazy. Yeah. Now, on January the 26th of 1990, the investigators convinced Danny Heinrich to stand in the lineup for three boys, two who had reported seeing a suspicious man in a car near Jacob Wetterling's house in the week before his abduction. And then Jared Sherrill. None pick out Danny Heinrich. None of them out of this lineup. I think uh, Jared picked out two, and one of them was him. But it had been, been a year for Jared. Yeah. It looks like, you know, they should have done like a voice thing, you know, because they all said he had that weird, scruffy, low voice. Deep voice. All the, all the kids said the same thing. Yeah, they could have done a just a voice match instead of a visual. Because you think about it, this dude was either had a mask on or was in his car. 
be kind of hard to ID them, you think? Mm-hmm. But what's kind of weird about this lineup is who didn't see it? Neither Trevor Wetterling or Aaron Larson. <clears throat> no. They just blunder. Yeah. It's crazy, man. And it's here the investigators miss perhaps their best chance to connect the abductions to one another and to their most likely suspect, which was Danny Heinrich. Yeah. A man whose clothes, actions, and words, all the same, and all the abductions. It's crazy. Yep. Now, in February of 1990, Stearns County detectives, they finally arrest Danny Heinrich in connection with the kidnapping and molestation of Jared Sherrill. He's drunk, and according to the retired Stearns County detective who described the incident to Gunmanson, uh, Gunman says the FBI agent who interrogated Danny Heinrich were inexperienced. Yeah, stupid. And they didn't know he was a suspect in the Painesville assaults. How could they not know? I know. They just, they just wasn't no communication. No, it's pitiful. And Danny Heinrich even denies any connection to the crimes and says he's being framed. But the FBI profilers who observe the interrogation don't seem to file a report. No. And even tell the detectives. They don't think he's guilty to let him go. Yeah. Just, yeah, you can go home. Just let him go. Now, there was some point in March of 1991, the FBI task force uh, commander, his name was Al Garver, and the Minnesota Department of Corrections investigator interviewed a man named Dwayne Hart in prison. And Hart was an early suspect in the Wetterling case. And uh, he's a convicted sex offender from Painesville and a longtime acquaintance of the Heinrich family. And Hart tells investigators he visited Danny Heinrich's apartment the month that Jacob was kidnapped, and he said he saw a handgun mm-hmm. and two police scanners and a black ninja-type suit, all of which are hallmarks of the assaults in the area. That's what all the boys in the area were describing. Right. Yep. And Hart said uh, Danny Heinrich asked him how to dispose of a body, and Hart says he recommended wrapping it in plastic and leaving it at a sewage treatment plant. And Hart tells Garber, that he suspects Danny Heinrich of the Wetterling abduction, but nothing came of that interview. That's crazy, man. Yeah, they just everybody's telling him who it is and where he is, and they just won't listen. And like we said, you know, even following Hart's interview, Danny Heinrich's name disappears from the Jacob Wetterling investigation file for more than twenty years. And by 1991, the file indicates the investigation has slowed down, Dale. And this is when he almost gets away from the investigators. Well, he did for almost two decades. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, he's, they ain't thinking anymore about him. Stupid. You know, and the thing is, hell, when he got Jared, that was nine months before this Jacob thing. That would never even would have happened. No. If they had Jacob has still been here today. Yeah. We wouldn't even be doing this story. Now, Dale, this case goes cold. Mm-hmm. And year after year, they would have potential leads, but nothing was credible. I mean, it just, it was nothing. And in October of 2015, this is 26 years after Jacob's disappearing, uh, Danny Heinrich was named as a person of interest Hmm. in the abduction. Imagine that. Yeah. In the summer of 2013, there was a a blogger. Her name was Joy Baker. And I think she was about 22 years old at the time, 23. And she was in this area and she wanted to investigate this crime herself. Yeah. And I think she even like went to the, she went to the library and checked all the microfilm. 
do all the backstories and all the old newspapers. But she'd even went to the Tom Thumb store and rode from there to the Wetterling home yeah. and followed the route and where the boys were abducted and investigated this herself. And she got to looking into the sexual assaults and things going on around the Painesville area and St. Joseph area, Dale. And this is when she contacts Jared Sherrill. Mm-hmm. And like we talked about, he was the boy who was um, abducted by Danny Heinrich in 1989, in January of 1989. And he agrees to sit down with her and tell her his story. Yeah. Yeah, and then see, he didn't even know about DL, all the other cases that had happened. He thought he was the only one for such a long time. Yeah. And then once they these two got together, he he realized after she told him, you know, all these other assaults that had happened, he started also digging in deeper and trying to find those people and sharing stories mm-hmm. and see what's going on. Yeah. So you're starting to put together some stuff and basically these two put together enough stuff to basically set up the case. And he, that's when he said he knew these guys were all associated. Mm-hmm. It was all the same guy. Mm-hmm. So in uh, 2013 and 2014, Jared and Joy were in contact with the Stern County's authorities. And they, they even said uh, two or three times a week mm-hmm. they were telling them stuff. And even all through 2013 and 14, Joy blogged the details of her findings. And in May of 2014, after months of requests, Joy and Jared agreed to do an interview for the local TV station. So this was really getting the story out about all the assaults and the kidnappings and things going on in the area. It was really ramping up. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, even back when it happened, he had told investigators what kind of car and all that stuff and about the guy had taken him and stuff and said but he thought the car had a luggage rack on him and told him it was a blue car and had a blue interior because when he was abducted, he made him put him in the back seat and made him lay down in the back seat. Mm-hmm. And uh, he kind of kept up with where they were going by remembering the left and right turns and what it felt like and on the roads and you know the bumps and the turns and stuff figure out where he's going to go and he took him crossing railroad tracks or something yeah he took him and assaulted him and then uh he didn't give him his clothes back but he gave him his snowsuit back and he took him and dropped him off somewhere and he let him go yeah and when he said you know you can go and you can even talk about it if you want to but if ever any authorities ever get close to catching me i'll come back and kill you so that's when he, he was just walking home from somewhere and stopped to get a uh, chocolate malt. When he came out, the guy was asking for directions. And when he went over to give him directions, he grabbed him and threw him in the back seat of mm-hmm. his car. But uh, so they kind of knew then this was they were still on uh, Danny's trail, but they went to check his car out and there was no luggage rack and the interior was uh, gray instead of blue. So they just dropped it right there. Yeah. But he did describe or did say that uh, he did have a police scanner. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that was one thing that. Uh, Hart had mentioned, you know, the prison, the guy in prison. Yep. So that was a connection there, but they yeah, still yeah. didn't. Yeah, he always had a police scanner. And he, actually, he had been pulled over one time before for, for doing something, and uh, a cop, one of the cops on the force, had seen that in his car before and had confiscated it. So he always kept uh, getting one because he always had one in his car. Yeah. It's crazy. He's like that, or he's wearing fatigues or doing this. You know, he's in the National Guard. So it was, everything fits this guy and they're giving him to him on a platter and nobody's paying attention so you had fbi you had uh, sheriff's department and all these law enforcement agencies working on this case and you get a, a internet blogger come in yep and 
with a fresh set of eyes and investigates this case. And, and turns, some want to. Yeah. That's the big thing. Yeah, some want to. And, and she turned this case upside down and, and made it happen. Yeah. So this, the police didn't solve this case. Joy Baker did and Jared, Jared. Jared Sherrill. Yeah. yeah. Now, in October of 2015, Dale, Danny Heinrich was quickly named a person of interest in the Jacob Wetterling disappearance. And he had been questioned by the FBI on December the 16th of 1989. And a DNA sample was taken. But he was not charged with a crime and was released. Right. And in 2015, Danny Heinrich's DNA was matched to the DNA taken in the case of Jared Sherrill. Right. Who was abducted in Cold Springs in Minnesota in January of 1989. And all this is comes basically comes back to Joey and Jared. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, get this, the statute of limitations had expired. Meaning he couldn't be charged with the kidnapping and assault of, the, of Jared. Yeah. Which I know Jared said that really pissed him off, that they had done all this work for the police, handed it to him, and then they say, well, we can't do nothing. But because of the DNA, there was a search warrant was granted, and Dale, inside of Heinrich's home, there were, I think, 19 spiral-bound notebooks full of child pornography. Yeah. They found pornography. They found like the clothes. Uh, I think they found a bunch of little boys' clothes. Mm-hmm. They found uh, um, scanners. Yeah, police, police scanners. scanners yeah, um, like the fatigues and the black boots, the whole works, everything they needed. Yep. That was, uh, yep. Crazy man. So they charged him with uh, all that uh, child pornography. And Heinrich decided to cooperate with the authorities. Yeah. Well, they they went in there and they pretty much. I think they pretty much knew that he did it now, finally, since somebody had really just basically slapped him in the face with it. Done their job for him. Yeah, and uh, but they didn't really have enough to, to prove that he's the one who killed Jacob. Now, like we said, Heinrich, he decided to cooperate with the authorities as part of a plea bargain. And on September the 1st of 2016, he led investigators to a burial site. Right. And Jacob's clothing and human remains were unearthed from a pasture near Painesville. It was about 30 miles away from the Wetterling home and abduction site and a short distance from where Danny Heinrich was living in 1989. Now on September 3rd, the remains were confirmed through dental records to be Jacob's. And Jacob's mother, Patty, told television station, a local television station there, that the remains found were indeed Jacob's. And she said, all I can confirm is that Jacob has been found and all our hearts are broken. I am not responding to any media yet as I have no words. Mm-hmm. That was what her quote. And in the plea agreement, Danny Heinrich agreed to plead guilty to one count of the 25 federal child pornography charges brought against him. And in addition to revealing the location of the body and pleading guilty. Right. So they basically said, look, you tell us where he is. We know you did it. We won't charge you with the murder. And we'll only charge you with one count of child pornography. Yeah. If you tell us where he's at. Yeah. So all these molestations and abductions and and that one murder of Jacob, that's all we're going to charge you with, one count of child porn. Yep. Yeah. And Heinrich testified that he kidnapped and handcuffed uh, Jacob, drove him to a gravel pit near Painesville, molested him, killed him, and buried his body. And... Danny Heinrich said that he was able to avoid police that night by listening to the police scanner. Right. Yeah, it's pretty bad. He, you know, he handcuffed him and threw him in the car. And as they were driving, 
said Jacob asked him what did I do wrong and I'm assuming that's because he's handcuffed yeah. in the car and then when they started seeing traffic come around he made him lay down in the front seat so nobody could see him till he got out of town mm-hmm. and then told him it was okay he could sit up and he took him out on that gravel road out there and went, walked out to the edge of the woods and he made him take his clothes off and, and then Danny take his clothes off and then did whatever they did and then uh he said the little boy said he was getting cold, so he told me he could put his clothes back on. He said, okay. So he put his clothes on, and he's like, are you going to take me home? He said, no, I can't take you home. You were too far out of town. So he started crying. He said, well, don't cry, don't cry. I said, we'll go back to the car. He said, and he started to go back, and he said, wait, just turn around. i got to use the bathroom. And when he turned around, he pulled out his gun and shot him in the head mm-hmm. and killed him. <sighs> what a piece of shit. Oh, yeah. The bad part was he put two – the gun he had the whole time wasn't loaded. The whole time he was – chasing these boys he was bullshitting them so he, put, empty gun, he yeah. put two bullets in his uh revolver and the first time he pulled the trigger it was on a dead chamber so it just clicked and then he shot and he said he turned his head and shot and he turned back he's still standing and he pulled the trigger again and turned his head and that's when he shot him mm. pitiful yep and he said uh, danny heinrich said he came back to the site a year later and he moved the body after noticing that Jacob's jacket had become exposed. Right. Yeah. We well, said, you know, the first time he tried to bury him, he said he, once he killed him, he went home. He just left him there and went home. And he said he stayed at home about an hour. And he went, and I don't know if I believe this or not, but he said he went home. And then about an hour later, he just took a shovel and walked back over a mile back to where the body was and tried to dig a grave with the shovel, but the shovel was was too small or the ground was too hard one or the other and said then he went and stole a bobcat off of a construction site one they found him with the key left in it yeah That's and crazy. then went out there and dug a hole and you know buried him then and then took the thing back and then walked back home now this whole time this is all within three to five hours after he kidnapped him and they're supposed to be doing this big thorough investigation and everybody's looking everywhere and this dude's out here with the lights on on a bobcat digging a hole and i don't know that's i don't know if i believe that or not but that's what that was his story that's what he said yeah and even during the court hearing uh danny heinrich also admitted to kidnapping and sexually assaulting jared Sherrill earlier that year Mm -hmm. the one that um he'll break the case yep him and uh, joy baker now, in exchange for Heinrich's plea, the prosecutors agreed not to charge him with the murder, like we said. Yeah. And in accordance with the plea agreement, Danny Heinrich was sentenced to the maximum prison term of 20 years for the child porn charge. Yes, yeah, said he'd serve 17 to 20. Yep. And in addition to the plea deal, the plea deal allowed the state authorities to seek his civil commitment as a sexual predator at the end of his federal prison term, which could prevent him from ever going free. Yeah, they shouldn't. Okay. Yeah. He should keep him in prison the rest of his life. But Danny Heinrich could possibly be released in 17 years from the start of his prison sentence. And Judge uh, Tunheim told him that it was unlikely, as this crime is so heinous, so brutal and awful, that it is unlikely society will ever let you go free. Right. Which he would be in, in his early 70s when that time comes up. But I mean, you kind of hope for some prison justice on this case. Yeah. Now, in January of 2017, uh, Heinrich was transferred to Federal Medical Center in Devons. It's a federal prison in Massachusetts to serve his 20-year sentence. Now, Dale, I just want to go back to Dan Rassier. He was the guy that lived close. Down the long gravel driveway? Yeah, that saw the car lights that night. And, With the record. Yep, and was considered a person of interest in this case for a very long time. Well, I think what what happened is... Around 2013, 
there was a new sheriff elected and he come in and he was going to be the one to solve this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what happened is they had a guy come in and tell him that that night, well, I don't know what this guy's name is. There was a guy who was at a party and he was talking to some people and they were talking about this case. Well, ended up the guy he was talking to was a law enforcement guy. And uh, he said, "Have you ever told this story to the law to law enforcement?" He goes, "Yeah, they didn't act, they didn't care." So what had happened is the night this happened, him and his girlfriend, who also had a police scanner, had heard it was happening. So they rode over there to where it was, and he got over there so early that he still saw the bicycles in the ditch. So he left and went back up and found a cop and pulled him over and told him about it. And the cop just kind of blew him off, said, "Yeah, we know all about it. We know where it is." Blah blah blah. So he said, "Okay." So he just went home. So this new cop or the new cop, the new sheriff came in and he heard this story. So then in his mind, then, okay, that explains the tire tracks right there. Mm-hmm. Even though he didn't know, cause it's been so long, he didn't know if they would match the tires or not. But the guy told him it was a pretty new set of tires. He was pretty sure. And so were the tracks, even though the treads may have not matched. So in his mind, there was no car and they've been looking for a car this whole time. So he, he's thinking that, um, Rassier, Mm-hmm. was probably the one who done it so he named him as a person of interest and man that really blew stuff out of proportion yeah because then then he had uh this tv reporter trying to chase him down and get stuff and he wouldn't talk to her and then she chased him down to work and you know, he's a music teacher at school and come up and they blocked his face out but they didn't block out his car or his clothes or the school in the background so everybody knew what it was so pretty much he couldn't he couldn't get a job or couldn't get a date couldn't do nothing because everybody thought he was a killer yeah, I mean, they had, he couldn't go into town with everybody thinking he was a killer. Right. So, you know, that's what he said, you know, when I, the first day I went up there to help him, when I heard about it, you know, when they, he thought people were stealing his, his wood, he said, I wish I just went ahead and told him to come down to my house and check all my buildings and check my house. Because if it had done, you know, that would have been over and done with. I said, you know, hell, this guy, the new sheriff had him out there digging up his farm and everything, trying mm-hmm. to find stuff down there when there was nothing to be found. Yeah. And especially when you already know what you know about this other guy. Basically, everybody in the whole world was trying to tell you who's doing it, and nobody listened. Mm-hmm. Pitiful. And then they yep. ruined this guy's life trying to make a name for himself. Yep. But uh, I think Dan Rassier did take a lot of t- tests, but they didn't tell him if he passed or failed. Right. So you know he passed it. We didn't yeah. tell him. Yeah. He said he wouldn't submit DNA because he said, hell, I didn't do it. I'm not going to do it. Yeah, I didn't I, I didn't do this crime. Right. He said he was he was uh, even uh, offering to do a under hypnosis interview, mm-hmm. but he wasn't. So I don't know. It's just crazy. Yeah, it's like they're looking everywhere but where they should be. And Dan even tried to sue, you know, for his life being ruined because of this. Yeah, but uh, he was denied. He didn't. didn't give him shit. He didn't get nothing out of this. It's just his life ruined because of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody. You know, he lived with his mom. They were elderly and. Everybody thought he was weird in already, and he's so I don't know. It's just yeah, he didn't have a chance. His only crime was just living close by. Yeah, that was it. Living man. with his elderly parents on the farm. Yeah, and have a really cool record collection. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. But I hate that for Dan, but I'm glad uh, Danny Heinrich is in prison, and he hope he don't ever get out. Yeah, and a little prison justice takes over him. Yeah, I know you said something about we kind of blew over it a while ago about um, him moving his remains. It said about a year to the day, uh, Heinrich went back to where he buried Jacob, and he noticed that uh, the red jacket was visible. So he went up to the where it was, and he'd seen some that and some bones. So he, he 
dug up everything, put it in a trash bag, and then took it across the road to a farm and then dug a, about a two-foot hole and reburied it. Everything. Yeah. And that's where it stayed for the next 26 years. Yeah. It's crazy, man. But now, just to close all this out, uh, four months after Jacob's abduction, his parents, Jerry and Patty Wetterling, they formed the Jacob Wetterling Foundation. And it was an advocacy group for children's safety. Mm -hmm. And in 1994, the federal Jacob Wetterling Act was passed and named for Jacob. And it was the first law to institute state sex offender registry. Mm -hmm. And this law has been amended several times, most famously by Megan's Law in 1996 and the Adam Walsh Child Protection Safety Act in 2006. Now, in 2008, the foundation started by Jacob's parents became the Jacob Wetterling Resource Center, and it carries on the work started by the Wetterling family to educate the public about who takes children and who they do it to and how each of us can, what we can do to stop it, pretty mm -hmm. much. And just another little side note, there is a bridge of hope. It's a crossing of the Mississippi River near St. Cloud. It is named in Jacob's honor. That's cool. Yep. So, yeah, this is a sad story. I hate it for Jacob. I hate it for his family, his best friend, Aaron. Aaron is, you know, I've seen interviews with him on YouTube, and, man, he just, this affects him every day. Yeah, he takes his heart. He, he's one of those uh, it's, uh, just guilt-ridden because he, he feels he abandoned his best friend when he ran away and let him take him. Mm -hmm. And said pretty much the rest of his life has been, he's felt like that since that day. Yeah. Can't imagine, man. Which is awful, man, because, you know, they're just kids. I mean, you know, what could he do? The guy had a gun. Yeah. They didn't know it wasn't loaded, but. Yeah. They were just going like to get him. a movie and have a good time. Yeah. Just kids being kids and all this. Some sicko. Yep. I hate it. But some good did come out of it. They got some laws passed and helped protect some more kids. Yep. All right, Dale. That is the murder of Jacob Wetterling. That's a big bumble of mess. Yep. All right. We're going to get out of here. Let's do it. We want everyone to be safe, be careful, and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is the, the Crack, Crack House, House Chronicles. Chronicles.